you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 22 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey, y'all, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith, and thank you for your prayers for me and my uh, fellow podcasters, BDK and Justin Fall. We appreciate your prayers and your support so, so much. Well, episode 22 is entitled, A Call to Arms, and in it, I'll be discussing how Christians who are called priests of God in 1 Peter 2 are commanded to fight according to 1 Peter 4. This message will undoubtedly challenge many American traditions, so I want to ask you to prayerfully value the words of God above all other words you've ever heard. And I want to be clear that this is not an anti-gun message, but rather it is a call to truly be pro-life. If you're blessed by this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave an honest review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at my website, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com, or you can email me at email philsbaker at gmail.com. In 2016, I wrote a book called New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. And you can find this book on Amazon. And if it's a blessing to you, please leave me an honest review there. I'm also blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And you can contact BDK at OmegaFrequency.com and you can send in requests for, uh, sorry, you can send in questions for that Q&A show there. And in addition to our own channels, you can find each of our podcasts at FourthWatchRadio.com or on the Fourth Watch Radio podcast. And finally, The early Christian quotes I use can be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. You can purchase your copy for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. All right, let's get episode 22 rolling. Though I have many friends who are Catholics, I've got a big problem with the Catholic Church. For one... There was no pope over the earliest Christians. They were governed by uh, various bishops and presbyters, elders. They had no pope ruling them and telling them what to do. And if you read their writings, you know they had many problems throughout those 300 years with the bishops of Rome. And as history moved on, these bishops of Rome began to make incredible claims about themselves. 
For instance, the Pope is called the Holy Father. And who is called Holy Father in the Bible? Well, you, you guessed it. It's, it's God the Father. The Pope eventually became known as the Vicar of Christ. And vicar means like main representative. And so the Pope calling himself the main representative of God, of Christ on earth, is just simply inaccurate according to John 14 and many other places where Jesus says, I'm going to send, when I leave, I'll send another helper, one of the same kind, to guide you into all truth, right? This is the Holy Spirit, and that's exactly what the early Christians said. The vicar of Christ is the Holy Spirit. The Pontifex Maximus, this means supreme bridge builder, and it's also translated as a high priest later on. Uh, This Pontifex Maximus, this term, the popes adopted for themselves, and yet the Bible is so clear in the book of Hebrews and other places that Jesus, Jesus is our high priest. And the term priest itself, as there are many priests according to uh, Catholicism that are able to do things that the common believer cannot do. Well, that's just simply inaccurate. You know, the Protestant denomination that I grew up in, uh, Baptists, they champion this idea of the priesthood of the believer. And it comes right out of First Peter chapter 2, that we all who have given our lives to Christ, we have become priests. Listen to First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 12. Peter writes to the Christians, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation." You know, Peter there is hearkening back to Exodus chapter 19, when the Israelites who have been delivered out of Egypt are standing at the, at the edge of Mount Sinai. And this is just before they are given the Ten Commandments. It says this, um, the Lord says this in verse 4 of chapter 19, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." So priests, generally, their, their function is to represent God to the people and represent the people to God. One of the 12 tribes of Israel are the Levites. And it's interesting when you read the Old Testament that Levites were not given 
any worldly inheritance, for God is to be their inheritance. These priests. It says that in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to serve him, and to bless in his name until this day. Therefore, Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God spoke to him. And it's interesting, Numbers chapter 1 really begins to flesh out part of the way the Levites have been separated to God for a different type of purpose, for a special purpose. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, by their families, by their father's household, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from twenty years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. So they are counted, the census is taken of all the fighting men of age. And guess what? You skip to verse 47, and now the Levites are brought up. The Levites, however, were not numbered among them by their father's tribe. For the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor shall you take their census among the sons of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings and they shall take care of it and they shall also camp around the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle is set out, the Levites shall take it down and when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. The sons of Israel shall camp, each man by his own camp, and each man by his own standard according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there shall be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. See, it's interesting. Levites don't fight. Levites don't fight, but they do fight. They just happen to fight in a very different way than all the others. They fight a spiritual battle. And that's very interesting. It's very interesting how 1 Peter then, chapter 4, tells the Christians that they fight in a very different way as well. We who are priests of God do fight, but we don't fight according to the way, the pattern of the world. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also 
with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now it's interesting, this word arm yourselves, arm yourselves, it is hoplizo, from the word hoplon, which means to equip yourself with weapons. This word hoplon properly means an implement. It is an implement normally used for warfare. It is an instrument always in the plural too. It's weapons to wage war in the New Testament. It underlines that God always gives all the resources we need to prevail in every form of spiritual warfare as we live in faith. So we are called to take up arms, and yet we do that in a very different way than the world. Origen, uh, around the year 225, he wrote about this in the title in the book, Origen Against Celsus, in volume four of the Antinicene Fathers, book seven. Origen writes this. He's dialoguing with this guy named Celsus who is opposing Christianity. And so it's, it's an apologetic work here in the early part of the third century. He writes this. In the next place, Celsus urges us to help the king with all our might and to labor with him in the maintenance of justice to fight for him, and if he requires it, to fight under him, or to lead an army along with him. So Celsus is saying, you Christians, you should be fighting, literally, with swords. You should be doing that if you love your country. And Origen writes, to this, our answer is that we do, when occasion requires, give help to kings, and that, so to say, a divine help putting on the whole armor of God. And this we do in obedience to the injunction of the apostle, quote, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, unquote. And the more anyone excels in piety, the more effective help does he render to kings, even more than is given by soldiers who go forth to fight and slay as many of the enemy as they can. So he's saying by our prayers, we actually fight better than soldiers and we accomplish more for the king than soldiers do. And to those, continuing, and to those enemies of our faith who require us to bear arms for the commonwealth and to slay men, we can reply, quote, Do not those who are priests at certain shrines and those who attend on certain gods as you account them keep their hands free from blood, that they may, with hands unstained and free from human blood, offer the appointed sacrifices to your gods? And even when war is upon you, you never enlist the priests in the army. If that then 
is a laudable custom, how much more so that while others are engaged in battle, these two should engage as the priests and ministers of God, keeping their hands pure and wrestling in prayers to God on behalf of those who are fighting in a religious cause and for the king who reigns righteously, that whatever is opposed to those who act righteously may be destroyed. It's interesting, Origen there says that you guys yourselves, you pagans don't require your priests to fight because you need them to pray for you. How much more so should we, who are the real priests of God and have actually real effective prayers, pray? We Christians who are all priests, why would you why would you require us to fight when you don't require your own false priests to fight? We can do far more good to them. He continues, And as we by our own prayers vanquish all demons who stir up war and lead to the violation of oaths and disturb the peace, we in this way are much more helpful to the king than those who go into the field to fight for them. And we do take our part in public affairs when all the righteous prayers we join self-denying exercises and meditations which teach us to despise pleasures and not to be led away by them. And none fight better for the king than we do. We do not indeed fight under him, although he requires it. But we do fight on his behalf, forming a special army, an army of piety, by offering our prayers to God. Do you believe in the power of prayer like the early Christians did? Do you really believe that prayer is doing nothing? All evil requires is for, 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 for evil to continue is for good men to do nothing. Well, do you believe that prayer is doing nothing? Because Origen believes that prayer really does accomplish far more than worldly weapons. Lactantius wrote in 304, religion is to be defended, not by putting to death, but by dying, not by cruelty, but by patient endurance, not by guilt, but by good faith. For the former belongs to evil, but the latter to the good. For if you wish to defend religion by bloodshed, tortures, and guilt, it will no longer be defended, but rather it will be polluted and profaned. Again, Lactantius is saying we are called to fight, but the way we fight is so different than the way the world fights. We don't fight by killing, but by dying. And he's saying it is effective, just like Origen, when we fight as Jesus fought then we are effective for the kingdom of God. But when we choose a worldly warfare as opposed to Jesus's warfare, we do more harm than good. Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians 10. He said, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And so we ask, 
Who is more powerful, a human or God? Therefore, which is more powerful, God's weapons or man's weapons? Paul says, we don't use man's weapons in our warfare. They are not powerful. We use God's weapons because God's weapons are powerful. They are divinely powerful. Paul also writes in Romans 13 that we are called to take up arms. We are called to take up armor, to fight. That word is there in in, uh, Romans 13 verse 12 that we are to put on the armor of light. Check this out. Verse 8 of chapter 13 of Romans. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So do this. Knowing that the time, that the hour is already for you to awaken from your sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. Not carousing and not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. You see, Paul says we are to fight, but we use armor of light, not armor of darkness. Armor of light is effective. This armor of loving your neighbor as yourself. Clement of Alexandria, he hits on this in 195 AD in volume 2 in his work, How a Rich Man Can Be Saved. He writes this, Be not deceived, thou who hast tasted of the truth, and be reckoned worthy of great redemption. But contrary to what is the case with the rest of men, collect for yourself an unarmed, an unwarlike, a bloodless, a passionless, a stainless host, pious old men, orphans dear to God, widows armed with meekness, men adorned with love, and obtain with your money such guards for body and for soul, for whose sake a sinking ship is made buoyant when steered by the prayers of the saints alone, and disease at its height is subdued, put to flight by the laying on of the hands, and the attack of robbers is disarmed, spoiled by pious prayers, and the might of demons is crushed, put to shame in its operation by strenuous commands. Now, I know 
I know that the apostolic tradition may be very different from your traditions. The apostolic tradition is so different from American traditions. It's vastly different from all the traditions of the world. But let's not be like the Pharisees in the Gospels who twisted the scriptures so that they could feel justified in keeping the traditions of men and breaking the commands of God. And Romans 13 says that the entire law is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. And there was a debate in Jesus's time as to what that command really meant. You see that in Luke chapter 10, when a scribe comes up to Jesus and says, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, how a priest and a Levite walked by a bleeding Jew, leaving on the road, valuing themselves more than their neighbor. And yet this Samaritan, this person that the Jews felt was less than human, he got down from his horse, bandaged the guy's wounds, put the guy back on his horse, took him to an inn, paid for all the care that would be needed for the man until he was well again, and any other expenses that might be needed for the man. And Jesus asks the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the one who fell into the hands of the robbers? And that scribe said, the one who showed mercy toward him. He had a hard time even saying Samaritan. He had to just say, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to the man, go and do the same. So to Jesus, at the heart, at the core of loving our neighbor as ourselves, is showing mercy to enemies. So I got to ask you, is permanently taking away someone's ability to repent an act of love to that person or an act of harm? Basically, if you kill someone who's acting in an unjust way to you, a sinful way to you, is killing them, basically taking away their ability to repent, is that loving toward that person or is it an act of harm? Can I permanently take away someone's ability to repent and show them mercy at the same time? Galatians 6.10 says, Do good to all people, especially to those of the household of faith. Yes, we are called to do really good deeds to Christians, but he says to all people to do good. Well, can I do good to someone by permanently taking away that person's ability to repent. Is that a good thing to do to someone? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that he no longer regards anyone from a worldly point of view. For the love of Christ compels him, controls him, having concluded that one died for all, therefore all died. Jesus died for everyone so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, 
but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Therefore, we no longer recognize anyone according to the flesh. So I got to ask you, how do you view even yourself? How do you regard yourself? Are you first and foremost an American with all American rights and privileges? Or are you first and foremost a priest of heaven? Are you an ambassador for, an, for America or an ambassador of heaven? Are you God's priest and missionary here on earth representing your real country, heaven? You know, there's this movie called The End of the Spear, and it's documenting Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and Peter Fleming's missionary trip to Ecuador to reach the Wadani people. And they take guns, but they're for protection from animals, basically. And in it, there's this pivotal scene where Nate Saint, he and the others are going, they know they're about to make first hand contact with the Wadanis, face-to-face contact. And these Wadanis, they are so dangerous. They are known as some of the most violent people in Ecuador. They They are tribesmen along the Amazon River, basically, and they are known, they are infamous for murdering anyone who slightly crosses them or who they don't trust, murdering them with spears. And so Nate's son is very worried for his father as his father, Nate, is about to uh, go out and meet these people face to face. And Nate is holding a gun and the son says, like, are you going to kill them if, if they come at you, basically? And Nate says this line. He says this line that's always stayed with me. He says, son, the Wadani are not ready for heaven. We are. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful? Nate knew that he was ready for heaven. And he wanted to make sure that the Wadanis would be ready for heaven also. So he couldn't kill them. He couldn't take away their ability to repent because that would take away their ability to meet the king of heaven in a joyful way. And so, Nate, Jim Elliott, and Peter Fleming went down to meet the Wadanis and the Wadanis murdered each one of them with spears. But that's not the end of the story. Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, Rachel Saint, and their kids, they went back, they went back to America for a short time. But then they returned. The women, the children, returned to Ecuador and faced the Wadani. And what's amazing is that this blew the Wadani's minds. 
it blew their minds. It was a sign to them of the truth of the gospel because they had never met people like this, these citizens of heaven. Even though, therefore, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, even though they didn't take up arms to defend themselves, in a way, they did take up arms. They took up heavenly arms to defend the gospel. As 1 Peter calls us, he armed himself, they armed themselves with the same purpose as Christ, the purpose to suffer for the gospel in faith, to suffer for the gospel without fear. And just as Paul tells us in Philippians, that choice to suffer for the gospel without fear was a clear sign to the Wadanis of the truth of the gospel. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in no way alarmed or frightened by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. He said, you have been called to experience the same suffering as me, the same suffering as Christ, which you saw in me. And the Philippians did see that in Paul. In Acts chapter 16, Paul was willing to be beaten for his enemies so that they could see the truth of the gospel. And that Philippian jailer did see the truth of the gospel. And he and his whole family that night gave their lives to Christ. And Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, struck a significant blow to the kingdom of darkness. May you have that same attitude as Christ and arm yourselves with divine weapons and go be priests of God. God bless you. When we were dead in sin, your great love broke in our world, and everything changed. You took a terrorist and made an apostle of him, oh Lord. You can do all things. The blood of Jesus Christ can break all chains. We sing hallelujah to the King. We'll sing hallelujah. 
Christ can break all chains. 